0: Hello listeners, as an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And, if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. you speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm on. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a lift off. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 238 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Commander Charles Conrad. Well surely there's four of us that have flown four times and I've flown four times. I flew two Gemini flights, uh, one in 65 and one in 66, then Apollo 12 to the moon and then uh, I commanded the first Skylab in 1973, which was 28 days. Do you have any plans to uh, go up again? Seriously, if uh, if I had the opportunity to go back to the moon again, which we're not going to do, I would dearly love to go back to the moon. I really enjoyed that flight. Uh, again, I think if uh, if they were going to have the large space station operation like I was involved in in Skylab, I'd, I'd enjoy doing that, mm-hmm. but really the reason that I, I'll probably never go back, I mean I've obviously retired, is that when I stopped flying in 1973, the United States was not going to have a program that would fly again until 1980. The third man to walk on the moon, Charles Conrad, was born on June 2, 1930, in Philadelphia. To Charles and Francis Conrad, he was their third child and their first son. His mother wanted very much to name her newborn son Peter. But Charles insisted that his first son bear his name. So, in a compromise between two strong-willed people, the name on his birth certificate read, Charles Conrad, Jr., no middle name. But to his mother, and virtually all who knew him, he was Peter. Since his early years, Conrad was mechanically and electronically inclined He took apart clocks, radios, and lamps to see how they worked. He was addicted to Popular Mechanics magazine. When he was 10 years old, he scavenged parts from a busted RCA, a transformer from a Lionel train set, and some spare wire, and he connected them all together. When he powered it up, through the hiss and pop of that cardboard speaker came the sounds of WSM Radio 65 Grand Ole Opry, right out of Nashville, 700 miles away. Peter's formal education began at Haverford School, a private academy in Haverford, Pennsylvania, that previous generations of Conrad's had attended. Even after his family's financial downturn, his uncle, Egerton, supported his continued schooling at Haverford. Haverford had been educating leaders for over 50 years by the time Peter entered grade school in 1936. Proud of its standards and traditions, Haverford was simply the school for an upwardly mobile, motivated boy to go in the Philadelphia area. Conrad's biography, titled Rocket Man, has a story that gives some insight to Peter's personality during his grade school years. When he was in the fourth grade, Peter Conrad was forced to play the role of the Virgin Mary in the school Christmas play. There were no girls to play the female parts. Peter's fair hair, baby face, and the slight stature made him the natural choice for the part. To put it mildly, Peter was not pleased with the honor. He knew his friends were going to make fun of him for the rest of his life, but for six straight nights, Peter had to sit still, looking wistful in the art department's manger, holding one of his sister's dolls in swaddling clothes, itching his rear end off in a ridiculous hooded wool bathrobe perched atop a bale of hay he was sure had been sampled already by a number of the local livestock. While his friend, Freddy Fennerick, snickered at him under his fake beard, holding down the fort In the much coveted role of Joseph, Freddie was a pain in the behind type kid, somewhat similar to the Leave It to Beaver character Eddie Haskell. Freddie stood like Jesus' father himself next to Peter while flatulating as frequently as he possibly could trying to break Peter's wistful look. The performance nights were bad enough, but the following days at school were unbearable, as the quote Virgin Mary end quote, had to endure the intolerable cruelty of his grade school colleagues who hadn't yet transcended to the higher consciousness surrounding our dear Savior's birth. Not at recess, anyway. On the sixth and final night of the play, the exhausted Virgin Mary had had all he could take. Even Freddy had lost some of his edge. As a matter of fact, he'd lost a lot of it. Christmas cookies and boiled custard from the all sing that afternoon were taking their toll, and Freddy was wilting under the sweaty fake beard and hot lights of closing night, when all of the area's finest donned their holiday colors and braved the cold to pay homage to the stately traditions of Christmas. As Peter itched and fidgeted and stared straight ahead with all the sincerity a bored, furious fourth grader could muster, Joseph suddenly vomited all over the Virgin Mary, in the Haverford School Auditorium in one violent heave. The reaction was swift and predictable. Gasp throughout the packed hall, teachers rushing to the aid of Freddy, the wise men, goats and cows scattering in a unified chorus of, Oh, gross! and a chain reaction puke or two the Virgin Mary quickly extricated himself from his itchy, puke-soaked bathrobe and in his underwear, cussed and punched the lights out of Freddie before the horrified audience below. So much for tradition. On a sadder note, by this time, the Great Depression had managed to wipe out most of the Conrad family's fortune, just as it had those of so many others. In 1942, the family lost their manor home in Philadelphia and then moved into a small carriage house paid for by Peter's uncle. Eventually, Charles Sr., broke down by financial failures, left his family. Even though he was short in stature at five foot six and one half inches, the young Conrad grew into a big man on campus at Haverford. An underclassman, he could skate and tackle and anchor the dirt behind home plate like a big leaguer, slugging a terrific three hundred and fifty batting average. The varsity days ahead looked great for Peter Conrad and Haverford Athletics. More than that, Peter had a great sense of humor. Having survived Freddie's vomiting in the fourth grade Christmas play, he was more often than not the lead in the middle school productions and now was showing up in the upper school shows stealing the show more than once. From the beginning, Peter Conrad was clearly a bright, intelligent boy, but he continued struggling with his schoolwork. Peter Conrad was suffering from acute dyslexia. It was a learning disability that barely even had a name in those days, and even then it was widely dismissed by doctors and teachers alike as theoretical at best. But it wasn't theoretical to Peter. It was a brick wall, and all the demerits and extra homework and study halls and lectures from his mother and father wouldn't even make a dent in it. It was just something he'd have to work through. So the boy, with the crumbling family fortune, the one the other boys snickered at when it was his time to read aloud from the Iliad, the one who clutched his temples with skull-crushing headaches at his desk at night, endured his professor's smart-aleck comments about being lazy and lousy marks every grading period. Peter was really having a tough time. But then, things improved a bit. Peter's cousin David gave him an old Indian motorcycle. It leaked oil, belched smoke, and the clutch slipped. But Peter loved it and loved to work on it. Also, starting when he was 15 years old, Conrad worked during the summertime at the Pauley Airfield near Pauley, Pennsylvania, bartering lawn mowing, sweeping, and other odd jobs for airplane flights and occasional instructional time. He learned more about the mechanics and working of an aircraft and aircraft engines, and then he graduated to minor maintenance work. When he was 16, he drove almost 100 miles to help a female flight instructor whose airplane had been forced to make an emergency landing. Conrad repaired the plane single-handedly and thereafter the instructor gave Conrad the flight lessons that he needed to earn his pilot's license and on August 22, 1947, Peter earned his pilot license even before he graduated from high school. However, Peter's dyslexia continued to frustrate his academic efforts. After he failed most of his 11th grade exams, Haverford expelled him from school. Peter's mother, Frances, refused to believe that her son was unintelligent, and she set about finding him a suitable school. She found the Darrow School in New Lebanon, New York. Darrow's approach was twofold: put hands to work, literally, and open the doors to the student's natural abilities and passions. It was a no-cop-out and no touchy-feely approach. Peter would have to repeat the eleventh grade; he would have to read Homer and Chaucer, and study the Dred Scott Decision, and solve the same calculus problems he would have had at Haverford. But he'd also have to chop firewood, cut trails, plant new trees, build small houses for the less fortunate with the Habitat crew, and take food to the needy at the holidays. Then suddenly there was a meaning to the whole thing and a destination. They didn't know what dyslexia was at Darrow either. There was some post-doctoral reading on the subject out there, but only experimental approaches to it. By and large, society and even academia mostly looked on any diagnosed dysfunction as a crutch and attacked the problem with more discipline than strategy. At Darrow, Conrad learned how to apply a systems approach to learning and thus found a way to work around his dyslexia. In the spring of 1948, for the first time since sixth grade, Charles Conrad Jr. made the honor roll. He barely squeaked onto it, but he made it. In the blink of an eye, the challenging kid, the rebel, became the heart and soul of the old Shaker Village, quarterback and captain of the Darro football team. Skating for the hockey team, behind the plate on the baseball squad, a fixture with the Darro players. He was even the campus mailman. Meanwhile, the flight logbook was getting filled up. Every weekend, he wasn't in a team sport or at a school function. He'd take the train or find a ride back to the main line and Polly Airfield or Westchester. He had trade work for hours. He was tuning motors, machining parts, taking the birds up for shakedown flights. More than anything else, he wanted to fly. Despite having to repeat the 11th grade, Conrad so excelled at Darrow that after his graduation in 1949, he not only was admitted to Princeton University, but he was also awarded a full Navy ROTC scholarship. More than 3,000 young men had applied for Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps scholarships to Princeton for the fall of 1949. Only 75 were awarded, and Peter Conrad was one of them. Peter and six others were the first declared majors in Princeton's inaugural Aeronautical engineering program in 1949. The Guggenheims selected Princeton and Caltech as the two sites for their jet propulsion labs, research centers designed to study this brand new way to move airplanes through the sky. For a freshman who far preferred numbers and diagrams to words on a page, who lived and breathed every facet of aviation, This place was paradise, and Peter was showing up on the ground floor. Jet engines had been operational for only ten years or so. Meanwhile, at Bern Mauer Private School for Girls, sophomore Jane DuBose was a tall, statuesque, olive-skinned society girl and the most beautiful creature the 21-year-old Peter had ever seen. The first thing Jane noticed about Peter was that he was shorter than she. The second thing she noticed was he didn't care. That, plus a focus and life plan a lot clearer than the other college boys around there, and a raucous energy level that kept everyone around him laughing, made Peter Conrad a likely candidate for accompanying her on her own journey. The uniform didn't hurt either. The next thing Jane knew, she was in an airplane just about every weekend of her life going to the Jersey Shore, back to Philly, maybe a dinner in Albany. It was just a tad more dynamic than the average collegiate dating experience. While Peter was still just 21 years old, Jane took him home to the ranch in Uvalde, Texas, to meet the parents. Although completely out of his element, Peter proved his worth to Jane's father, and he gave Peter his nickname that he would use for the rest of his life, Pete. Conrad continued flying and earned an instrument rating, and he earned his B.S. in aeronautical engineering from Princeton on June 16, 1953, and his automatic commission as an ensign in the Navy as a Naval ROTC graduate. One day later, he married Jane. Pensacola was Conrad's first step in the naval aviator's journey after college. If naval science is a kick in the pants, Pensacola is a swift kick in the behind. By a Marine, a shouting, spitting, rattlesnake-tempered Marine drill sergeant instructor with steel-toed boots, and no one got any preferential treatment just because they were an ROTC graduate. But Pete did endure and thrive in that environment. The flying was the easy part. Pete, the only cadet who'd showed up fully instrument rated, was soloing in the SNJ trainer aircraft from the get-go. Watching those brand new jets screaming overhead, he couldn't wait to climb into one, light it, and go. One of Conrad's proudest days was when his Marine drill sergeant pinned his wings on him and saluted him for the very first time. Pete Conrad was a naval aviator. In 1955, Conrad was assigned to Fighter Squadron VF-43 in Jacksonville. The squadron had been decimated in Korea, and Conrad was assigned to help rebuild it. Conrad impressed his executive officer on his first flight. Pete transitioned out of the jet trainer and into the F-9, F-8 Cougar as seamlessly as he moved from the Piper to the Navion. Unlike his peers, he understood how these planes and their systems worked and could explain things like fluid dynamics and structural airflow systems to non-engineers, which most of the 25-year-old flyers were. In 1956, Conrad was invited to the annual Navy Invitational Shootout to see who was best in the fleet. He took number one position, and Alan Shepard came in third. Next, Conrad applied for, and was accepted, by the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Patuxent, Maryland where he was assigned as a project test pilot. He took his wife, and now two children, with him. Pete was carrier qualified, rated number one in his squadron, and had been in the top five of the Navy shootout competitions three years running now. When Pete arrived at Pensacola, he was still a boy and at Jacksonville, somewhere in that gray area just south of a fully realized adult. When he reported for duty in Pax River, he was a man. Pete had finally arrived at the place to be if you flew Navy, surrounded by aviators of equal status, Jim Lovell, Dick Gordon, Wally Sherall, Al Shepard, and others. After Pete's third son was born late in 1958, he received a top-secret letter that only about a 100 military pilots got. The government was looking for 12 people, it didn't matter which branch of service, to report to the Loveless Clinic in New Mexico for a series of tests and evaluations to determine their suitability for a long-duration flight. They were looking for pilots to go head-to-head with the Russians and make sure the first man in space was an American. In early 1959, Conrad reported to Washington, D.C. for a series of interviews and physical and psychological tests in support of Project Mercury. Conrad and his fellow candidates underwent several days of what they considered to be invasive, demeaning, and unnecessary medical and psychological testing at the Loveless Respiratory Research Institute in New Mexico. However, unlike his fellow candidates, Conrad rebelled against the regimen. During an ink block test, he told the psychiatrist that one ink block looked like a mating encounter, complete with lurid details. When shown a blank card, Conrad turned it around, pushed it back to the doctor and replied, It's upside down. Then, when Conrad was asked to deliver a stool sample to the on-site lab, he placed the sample in a gift-wrapped box and tied a red ribbon around it. Eventually, Pete decided that he had had enough. After dropping his full Enema bag on the desk of the clinic's commanding officer, he walked out. Therefore, Conrad's initial application was denied with a notation not suitable for long-duration flight. Ironically, two of Conrad's four space missions would set records for long-duration flight. Three years later, when NASA announced its search for a second group of astronauts, Mercury veteran Alan Shepard, who knew Conrad from their time as naval aviators and test pilots, approached Conrad and persuaded him to reapply. This time, the medical tests were less offensive and Conrad was selected to join NASA. And when I came in the ready room, uh, everybody knew that I had been trying for the program, you know. And they said, you had a person-to-person long-distance phone call from Houston, you know. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, Charlie. And sure enough, it was the evening. He asked me if I wanted to come fly for NASA. So, of course, I was, I was so excited, I didn't know what to do. I almost wrecked myself driving home in the car. Conrad joined NASA as part of the second group of astronauts, known as the New Nine, on September 17, 1962. Regarded as one of the best pilots in the group, he was among the first of his group to be assigned a Gemini mission. Salutations, and Happy New Year from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 238 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Commander Charles Conrad, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my long-time listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed. In case you haven't heard... The first 35 episodes of the podcast are available on the Space Rocket History Archive podcast. This means that the first 35 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. To find the archive episodes, search for Space Rocket History Archive. My server plan allows me to put 100 megabytes of episodes per month, so I plan to get some more Archive episodes up in January. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thanks, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge this month. Had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to the book, Rocket Man, Astronaut Pete Conrad's Incredible Ride to the Moon and Beyond, by Nancy Conrad and Howard Klossner. I used this book heavily in this week's episode. Well, what a remarkable man Pete Conrad was, dealing with dyslexia during a time when it wasn't really being treated, living in the Depression as his family lost their fortune and his father left them, and somehow overcoming all that To be the third man to walk on the moon. In fact, he flew in space four times. A mighty impressive career and life. He never let his limited stature affect what he wanted to do. His first wife, Jane, was taller than him, but he didn't really care. But he was pretty close to the right size for being an astronaut. He was great at sports as well, and he had a tremendous engineering aptitude. Math and science were easy for him. He only struggled with reading. He loved to operate most anything, cars and, unfortunately, motorcycles, but he loved the most flying. What did you think about the way he ended his first attempt at becoming an astronaut? He gift-wrapped a stool specimen and dropped a full enema bag on the commanding officer's desk. Well, that ought to do it. (laughs) He would always say, if you can't be good, be colorful. And he certainly was. We will continue with Pete's biography next week. I posted some pictures and the audio for this week's episode on the homepage spacerockethistory.com Hope you check that out. I was extremely pleased to receive many donations to support the podcast over the past two weeks. Buddy M. donated at the Orion level and earned his rocket and moon emoji for 2017. He also pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji for 2018. Matthias G. donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji for 2017. Anthony B. donated at the Salyut Skylab level for 2017. Christoph M. donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji for 2017. Matt M. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji for 2017. Thomas P. donated at the Apollo level for 2017. Mark L. from Cincinnati sent in another donation this year and moved to the Apollo level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis for 2017. Mark L. also sent in a donation for 2018 at the Mercury level and is the first PayPal donor of 2018 to earn the new emoji for donating five consecutive years. Steve C. sent in another donation for 2017 and moves to the Mir ISS level. Peter H. from UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji for 2017. Tobias L. sent in another donation for 2017 and moves to the Gemini level. Ken A. donated at the Gemini level and earned his new emoji for 2018. Lawrence W. sent in another donation for 2017 and moved to the Soyuz level. Eric Y. from Maryland donated at the Mercury level for 2017. Jeff O. donated at the Vostok level for 2017. Marco M. donated at the Vostok level for 2017 and earned his rocket emoji. William D. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Robert P. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Joseph G. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. John L. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Joseph D. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Stephen W. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Bill S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Peter P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Andrew B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Justin M. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And more good news. Everyone that was a Patreon for 2017 automatically got an emoji upgrade for 2018 if they continued their pledge in 2018. To put it another way, all Patreon donors that pledged in 2017 and continued with their pledge in 2018 got an automatic upgrade on their emoji. Now it is possible that we could have missed someone. So please go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and pull up the donors page and make sure your name is right and make sure you have the right emoji beside it. And if you do find a problem just do not panic, just email me and I will get it fixed. There'll be no problem. Our Patreon donors I am proud to say reached 150 for 2017. We actually made our goal. I thought that might not happen after that little uh, Patreon fiasco we went through, but it did. Somehow some way you came through and I appreciate it sincerely very much. I got so excited that we met both goals in 2017. I had to call up Walter Cronkite again and let him know this is what he had to say. The floor is terrific! The floor is shaking! This big glass window is shaking now. we're holding it with our hands. Look at that rocket go! Thanks, Walter. I appreciate it. <laughs> but seriously, folks, I am very thankful we exceeded both our goals. We reached 150 on the Patreon donors and 337... On the total donors. I want to thank everyone who supported the podcast in 2017. Now let's talk about the goals for 2018. In keeping with President Kennedy's speech at Rice University, we must be bold. For 2018, I believe this podcast should commit itself to reaching the goal of 218 Patreons and 418 total donations. Can we do it? Sure we can. Now for a word on longevity. I'm sure everyone recalls that we have longevity emojis that we put next to the donor's name on the donor's page. To refresh your memory, a person donating for two years in a row gets the coveted rocket emoji. Three years gets a treasured moon emoji. Four years gets a sought-after satellite emoji emoji and new for this year anyone donating for five years will receive the superb shooting star emoji as well as their previous emojis so the new one for five years is the shooting star we actually have several people who have already earned the shooting star for 2018 For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon you to keep the podcast going. You can donate through Patreon or make a one-time donation at the homepage spacerockethistory.com. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, which includes all the Patreons, And two new donations for 2018. I certainly want to say that I appreciate it. And I have a new item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. That's right. It's a magnet made of vinyl that can go on your refrigerator. It has the Space Rocket History logo, starting on the left with the Mercury Redstone, and then we have an Atlas, a Gemini, a Saturn 1B, a Saturn V, an N1. We have the Skylab Saturn, and we have the Space Shuttle. It's quite an impressive magnet. Now, we will select the winner. The first winner for 2018 is Florian Ragwitz, Florian. If you would email me Mike at history dot com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. We'll have another donation next week, and we will have another magnet. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five star ratings on iTunes. These were anonymous, so I would like to thank those who gave the podcast the all important five star rating. Thank you very much. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Pete Conrad's biography. In podcast news, I want to send out a special thanks for Mrs. SRH for helping out with the updates to the donors page for 2018. It takes a surprisingly long amount of time to get everything on there correctly, and that's why I did mention that if things are not correct, please check on the donor's page for your name and your emoji level. Make sure we've got that all right. In personal news, we are planning another trip to do some winter camping. We're going to the great state of Alabama, and we also plan to stop by and visit Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville. Now, I I went there back in 1994, so I'm assuming there's a lot more stuff there that I haven't seen. But if you know of special things in the area that should not be missed, please feel free to email me and let me know, and hopefully I can go there too. I plan the trip. Hopefully, before the end of the month, we can get there. That's what we're, we're shooting for before the end of January. It looks like SpaceX is getting ready to launch the Falcon Heavy this month. Now, I'm kind of hoping that that date slips just a little bit into February, because if it slips into February, I may get a chance to go down there and see it. So, in either case, though, I certainly want to wish SpaceX the best of luck and getting the Falcon Heavy off the ground and having a successful trip for Elon Musk's uh, Tesla. <laughs> hope, he, hope he makes it to Mars. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week, and I hope to have episode 239 posted by next Thursday. I want to wish everyone a Happy New Year, and so long for now.